Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. I mean, come on, no one plans to get sick. And yet, here we are. My name is Matthew Zachary. I survived cancer, a stroke, and COVID-19, and I'm still here. I also survived our broken healthcare system, and I want to help you survive it too. So let's go make healthcare suck less together, because we're all out of patience. Hello, friends. Welcome back. A quick reminder before we get started, if you like the show and you're listening on Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating, a review. It helps other people find the show or don't. Either way, up to you. On the show today, Dr. Mark Lewis is the director of GI Oncology at Intermountain Healthcare in Salt Lake City. He is a young adult survivor of pancreatic cancer, a thought leader on med Twitter, and honestly, one of the funniest and down-to-earth physicians you're likely ever to meet. Motivated by losing his father to cancer, coupled with a genetic predisposition for empathy, his story of when the doctor gets cancer preaches the virtues of data and truth. Prepare you to find out what happens when Sid the Science Kid meets Dexter's Lab meets Pickle Rick. Enjoy the show. Dr. Mark Lewis, thank you so much for coming on the program. Such an enthusiastic welcome. Thank you. Well, we have nice microphones, so we have to sound good. <laughs> That's right. Got to match the quality of the equipment. Yeah. You know, I only um, have notifications set to maybe one of six people on Twitter, and you are one of them. That's a lot of pressure. I'm really going to have to step up the content at this point. Well, I mean, it is like you are the hilarity ensues doctor on Twitter, and it's it puts Kevin MD to shame. So well done. <laughs> Well, you know, some of my peers don't exactly think it's professional for a um, oncologist to sort of moonlight as a, you know, not very good stand-up comedian, but thank you for saying that. Uh, one of my purposes is, you know, trying to bring some levity uh, to the field, hopefully not inappropriately so. Well, you're also like on the younger side of like the geriatrics that preach and you get any like shit from those guys? Like, are those the ones that are telling you, you shouldn't be funny because you're a doctor? Well, yeah, you know, in the last decade, I've seen social media in oncology in particular go as something seen as frivolous and unprofessional as actually something that is to aspire towards. And so it's really interesting. Some of the, yes, more senior faculty who at first were um, not thrilled about my social media activity now sometimes ask me for tips on engagement. So I think the tide has turned there. Well, I mean, you got like 40 something thousand followers. That's very impressive for an oncologist. Well, I partly did it by being a patient, uh, which you'll, you'll well understand. I live tweeted uh, pancreatic cancer surgery in 2017. Um, that was probably the, the biggest spike in followers, although I don't recommend it as a way to increase your clout. I got to say, like from a uh, social reach perspective, there's nothing quite like, you know, being sick. 
It, it, exactly. It, uh, again, don't try this at home, but it does seem to uh, resonate with quite a lot of people. It's like a pity growth strategy. <laughs> that's, that's right. So I want to dive right in because I think the most, I mean, there are many fascinating things we're going to talk about, but you know, when the doctor becomes the patient and then the patient goes back to being the doctor, that is, yeah. I mean, it, I'll say it's rare. It's probably not as rare as it, it might be working at stupid cancer all those years with younger folks. Didn't come across yeah. many, but here you are. I, I think few are quite as <laughs> prone to exhibitionism as me, but yeah. I, I will say, I think that there's actually a, a pet theory I have that oncologists are more prone to cancer. And the reason I say that is not any sort of occupational exposure, but many of us were drawn to the field uh, because, you know, loved ones, family members were affected and that may incur some mild increase in hereditary risk. That's certainly the case with me. So wherein lies the genetic mishaps in your tree? Chromosome 11 uh, is uh, defective in me. So what happened was we were moving from uh, Scotland to America in 1987 and found that my father had a very rare form of neuroendocrine tumor. And he was in great health at the time. It was really only his immigration x-ray showed us a problem. And that's when I first sort of had a hint that the the genes were uh, not perfect. Uh, he passed away when I was a freshman in high school. That's what motivated me to go into oncology at all. And then I found out I had inherited the mutation from him right when I started my formal training uh, in cancer medicine at Mayo Clinic. So I've seen the entire length of my career through the prism of a patient physician. So at an early age, you learned even like, you know, genetics and genes exist. I, it throws me back to like Mr. DNA cartoon in Jurassic Park. Like, you were forced to learn all the science, and then you are now in the science? That's right, yeah. So Mendel and his you know, pea plants and crossover, that was something I learned pretty early. I was a very strange child. My seventh grade science project involved crossing over fruit flies. To date myself, it was the early 90s. My school district actually gave me, I can't believe this is true, a jar of ether. It was like doing anesthesia in the 1800s and allowed me to stun these fruit flies and then mate them. So it was a very weird upbringing. But again, it was one sort of seen through the lens of, wow, my dad's really sick. I want to try to understand this. I have a really vivid memory of going to my middle school library and looking up cancer in the encyclopedia just in a sense to understand what was going on with him. Uh, and obviously, the field has come so far since then, and thankfully to the benefit of many patients, including AYAs. I love the, like said, the science kid makes Dexter's lab middle school story. <laughs> That's fantastic. I mean, I'm sitting here like putting, you know, vinegar and crap at a volcano at seventh, <laughs> seventh grade. Well, and l let me tell you, I was I was beating the ladies off with a stick. It was extremely attractive to my, my female classmates. But actually, funnily enough, I ended up meeting my future wife in high school biology. So I guess I shouldn't be too glib about that. Well, I mean, the thicker the goggles, right? <laughs> I don't right. know what that means. I just said that. My apologies, audience. Anyway. No, not at all. I think, you know, uh, no one has to get sick, like I say at the top of the show. And like, it's, it's horrible when a family member goes through this and you get kind of sucked into the, uh, now it matters to me, even though it kind of may have mattered to me before. And this notion of empathy pervades all of your writings and your, your, your proliferations, your proselytizations. Uh, I mean, was that... Was that embedded chutzpah at birth or did that get exacerbated through your dad or in practice? It's, it's a word that isn't expounded upon enough. Well, that's very kind of you. I think every oncologist should have uh, sympathy for their patients. 
Uh, empathy, though, this sort of hard-won understanding of having even the slightest sense of what a cancer diagnosis is like, like you said earlier, is not something that we necessarily want to inflict on all the oncologists. It's interesting. My wife's a pediatrician, and during her training, which I thought was very clever, they made the pediatric residents taste all the antibiotics they were going to prescribe so they would understand just how unpalatable uh, they are to kids and how difficult it is for parents to sort of cajole them into taking it. Obviously, oncologists don't all take the chemo we prescribe. You know, empathy is really powerful. It, it's looking at someone else and asking yourself, you know, what would it be like to be in someone's shoes and having, again, at least a shadow of understanding what, what it would be like. Yeah, I've asked the question a million times, like med school these days, is empathy training bespoke to where you go to school or is it actually like mandated curriculum or is it still like, oh, it's a practicum, go have fun with it on Thursday if you want? Um, it's not quite as protocolized as we might like yet. You know, my medical school was now, gosh, two decades ago, so it's probably changed quite a bit. But I will say that, you know, it's really hard to sort of embody research, meaning that it's really difficult even if you strain, unless you've had the clinical experience yourself, to get it. And my example there is, you know, when I had my surgery on my pancreas, that's a surgery that I routinely recommend for patients with pancreas cancer. But to go through it myself was a completely different experience, even than understanding, you know, the, the anatomy and all the steps that it takes to get to the pancreas and excise the tumor. So that's where I learned really the difference between, you know, textbook and real life. Yeah. And I don't want to you know, undermine the fact that this is pancreatic cancer. That's a really big deal. You know, people think, oh, that's Steve Jobs and Alex Trebek. No, it's it's a it's a real thing, affects real people. And you're a young guy. And this is like largely a disease of the elderly. Again, this is pr genetic predisposition. But yeah. having had that existing awareness of it, did it in any way put you in a place to think that it is coming? And what can I do in advance of it? Yeah, exactly. So I actually kind of saw it coming from a distance. So when I figured out my genetic predisposition, I was actually able to watch my pancreas really closely. You know, the reason it's such a deadly disease is most people are completely blindsided by it. 85% of my patients with this diagnosis when they show up in my clinic will never be cured. We're just too far behind. So I really had the gift of foresight, um, was able to operate and get out my most threatening tumor. Because I'm a mutant, my entire pancreas is prone to developing more cancer. Uh, so at some point, I may require the whole thing to come out, but so far, so good on that. Yeah, we, we used to have this running gag at Stupid Cancer. How many things can you live without and keep living? <laughs> That's right. Well, it turns out part of your pancreas can go, your spleen, your appendix, your gallbladder. Uh, funnily enough, my uh, mother was a little bit upset at first with my surgeon that he didn't perform appendectomy at the same time as my six and a half hour pancreatic cancer surgery, you know, just kind of one step shopping. But, you know, he had other things to do and other parts of the abdomen to focus on. That's hysterical. It's like a BOGO. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I, I think it's important to talk more about like, you know, where in lies the rub to expect patients to have this natural curiosity versus... I don't want the test because it means I might be sick. Right. Well, I, I will say I've seen the rise of the, the self-advocating patient almost in tandem with uh, the internet and social media. Uh, I'm personally someone that thinks that more information is generally better. Uh, I think monsters are more scary in the dark. And I think it is, at least in my opinion, uh, better to know what's wrong. I think you know, I see a lot of people come to me and their diagnosis and thus their chance at cure 
um, has been delayed uh, largely through denial. Um, and I think you know better than anybody in the EYA space, you know, that the notion that youth equals immortality um, delays appropriate discovery of disease, uh, both on the physician level, but also sometimes on the patient level. Well, this idea of genetic predisposition is kind of a niche market, right? So you're looking at right. children of adults or elderly who have breast cancer, colon cancer, lung cancer, prostate cancer, and then you can say, well, am I then more at risk because my dad or my grandfather had it? That's not everybody. No, it's not. And, and you know, we still largely conceive of cancer as a disease of aging, of senescence. If you think about how we screen for colon cancer, we just recently lowered the age of first screening from 50 to 45, but even that is overlooking, unfortunately, a very large population of early onset disease. It's going to happen, you know, to people in their 20s or 30s, and I see that all the time in my clinic. The average age of a colon cancer patient in my practice is 68, but one in seven of my patients are AYA. So, you know, that's the that's the tr the struggle is how do you reconcile thinking of cancer as a disease of aging with the fact that we know far too well that AYA cancer is a real thing. Right. And, you know, just to call out the economic elephant in the room, there's no money in AYA cancer. So you have to start right. looking at uh, sort of genomics and biomarkers, you know, jargony terms, and then access to those diagnostics in an affordable way to people that are not retired on, you know, a Medicare. Well, it sounds horribly um, cold to make this fiscal argument, but the way I've put it to some people is, listen, life years gained means more treatment that you can give, or at least more surveillance you can give. And, you know, frankly, there's a notion now of patients as loyal customers or clients. And you know, if you cure someone in a healthcare system, you know, in their teens or young adulthood, hopefully that's someone that you can then follow longitudinally for the rest of their life. Um, you know, increasingly what we're seeing in America is consolidation of healthcare systems where it's not impossible now, depending on where you live, to stick with the same system at least for your entire life. Well, again, it, it's just like I'm channeling my young adult cancer world for 15 years. And yeah, where I was invincible, like I can't use my hands. I'll just switch my hands and play piano and there's nothing wrong with me. And then boom, sorry, brain cancer. Oh, well, whatever. Like how dumb do you have to be? But it's okay to be dumb when you're 19 to 20 years old. Exactly. To the extent that diagnostics have come a long way in, you know, colon, I mean, just look at Cologuard, like a yes. phenomenal example of that. And exactly. esophageal cancer screenings with and endoscopies and, you know, uh, prostate cancer, obviously uh, breast cancer, at least in, you know, in, in some of the late 30s, it's kind of getting an uptick a little bit to get diagnosed earlier. But in terms of your seeing this trajectory from, oh, you just kind of died from it a few years ago, and now you got to figure out how do you live better with it and maybe without right. it one day. What's your take on that? Yeah, I mean, thankfully, progress is marching on, uh, not as fast as we would like for people that are affected now or for the loved ones we've lost in the past. But, you know, honestly, it's absolutely incredible. You know, my father's treatment would look completely different today, which means my treatment would be different and my son's treatment would be different. So the other thing I bring here is um, I'm a parent of a child with the same mutation that I carry that I got from my dad. So I actually think a lot about the future of medicine and I think we're going to get better and better. Uh, I think toxicity will get less indiscriminate. And I think our diagnostics and companion with that will get more precise. Back with our guest after the break. 
CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. So picking up, I want to just noodle on Twitter for a second. In We're recording this after the election, so depending on who's listening, you may be thrilled or not thrilled. But I'm happy Twitter is a little calmer these days, and it might make up uh, the delta between getting information out to cancer patients amidst COVID. But again, yes. your channel, one of the ones I actually get notifications for, you posted recently a a, uh, a screenshot of a, a handwritten letter a child wrote you. Yeah. Um, what is it like to receive that kind of feedback? Oh, so, so rewarding. And, you know, honestly, the last year in social media has taught me a lot. Um, I think, honestly, prior to COVID, I was pretty naive and thought, well, you know, I'm an oncologist. It's pretty clear I'm trying to do good things for people with cancer. Um, I'm certainly not perfect and people aren't going to share all my opinions, but I didn't think it was going to get that uh, nasty. And it got extremely inflammatory in an election year with a very polarizing response to a pandemic. So to get, you know, nice sentiments through the mail, and I'll point out uh, just the sort of innocence of children, it's not the first time uh, actually I've had correspondence from someone really young. Uh, I had a beautiful experience a couple of months ago with a um, child of a reporter in Canada. And as a journalist, her mother had had found me on Twitter. And this young girl uh, was very interested in being an oncologist, and she's only in seventh grade. And at the end of the conversation, you know, I said to her, you know, why do you want to do this? I mean, this is a tough profession to go into. And she said, well, doesn't somebody have to help the sick people? And I just thought, you know, wow, um, for all the cynicism and all the divisiveness we've seen among adults, that's a really beautiful thing. It really is. I mean, I don't, I hate painting with broad brushes and nothing is black and white, but this notion of it doesn't matter until it happens to me versus I'm aware that it shouldn't happen to anyone is right. just a stark way to think about 
again, empathy and humanity. I did want to read just one sentence from this letter because I'm sure my listeners are like, well, what's in the letter? Because it's radio. <laughs> we can't show them it. But he just said, you know, you're a real inspiration to me and many people I know. I want you to remember that God has a plan for you and me. All, all you have to do is trust in it. And in perfect kid language, I wish you the best of wishes. Your friend Peyton. That's incredible. <laughs> I know. It really is remarkable. And funnily enough, you know, I'm the son of a, a preacher man, so I know not everyone will share my particular uh, faith. But, you know, I have tried to view um, oncology as – and say this in the most respectful manner, almost like a secular ministry. So that line in particular hit me hit me hard. Um, there is also the, the counterpoint from, say, um, Kate Bowler, who obviously is an incredible mind, um, theologian, patient person, that this notion that you know, everything happens for a reason is very hard for some people to swallow. But no, I thought the sentiment from Peyton was really gorgeous. Yeah, I have a colleague, you may know her, Emily McDowell. She's a young adult mm -hmm. survivor, started like this anti-Hallmark greeting card company. And that's all about <laughs> snark and snide. And and I, I, I would just say like cancer fuckery for people that don't want to give you a regular wristband or ribbon. One of her cards says, allow me to punch in the face anyone that tells you everything happens for a reason. I love you. That's the yes. card. <laughs> yes, that <laughs> is amazing. I, I remember card. I remember there was a series of demotivational posters that came out in the 90s. And one of my favorites was uh, Overachievement. And it said, the tallest blade of grass is the first one to get cut down. So yes. I know exactly what you mean. Yes. Yeah. That's like my dad used to say, the squeaky wheel gets the oil. And then my mom would say, well, the squeaky wheel gets replaced. <laughs> Lessons learned today on how to patience. <laughs> All right. So I, I, it's so important to talk, obviously, the timing of our having this conversation, physician burnout, PPE risks, you're married, you have children. Walk us through the, what I can only imagine, can't be encapsulated in like 15 minutes, but what has it been like for you and your colleagues? It's been a wild uh, ride. I think the silver lining, and I almost feel like I'm gloating to say this, is that many of us who are at high risk of transmitting the disease to vulnerable patients were first in line to get the vaccine. I was also pretty um, overt about doing that. And again, some people accuse me of boasting. And that's, I guess, a matter of judgment. The reason I did it is I wanted to show people I thought it was safe. In the era of misinformation, which we have seen run rampant in the last year, I think we've learned that just saying that we you know, trust the science and here's the data, uh, that's not enough. You have to walk the walk. So my wife and I together, and uh, she lets me handle the, uh, the Twitter aspect of things, have really been very uh, vocal about um, our experience during the pandemic. Um, I was incredibly proud of her last spring. Um, one of her colleagues who's in a small pediatric practice in the Carolinas without PPE called her and said, listen, I don't have any masks. And um, my wife just sat down at the dining room table and started making them. And then she realized, well, listen, I've got this idiot husband with this <laughs> Twitter following. <laughs> Maybe I can amplify and get other people to do this. And that's exactly what she did. Um, so she said, hey, listen, can you sort of do a tutorial on how to make these so other people can do the same? And so the experience has been incredibly interesting. I, I will say as parents, uh, it's been remarkable, again, to see our kids be so adaptable. Uh, both of us come home and, you know, we can't really hug them. We have to go straight and change. And they've really, you know, they got that. And um, they've been doing virtual learning. They understand that we're trying to minimize risks. And I realize not every family has that privilege. Yeah, there are countless thousands of, of listeners from the medical profession who are probably nodding their heads saying, this is me. 
Do you proffer up any life hacks of wisdom of how you've been able to just mentally endure this? Uh, well, actually, I, I, I point to Twitter because, um, again, there's various communities on Twitter and, as you know, very active and helpful around AYA, but there's also communities of, of doctors and Hashtag med Twitter has actually sustained me um, a great deal in the last year. Uh, it's helped me fend off attacks from you know anti-science and anti-vaccine groups. It's also helped me realize that you know none of us are in this alone. And you know, one of the things that has been a hallmark of the pandemic for almost everybody is a sense of isolation. So just remembering that you know we are all going through something at various degrees and it's not in tandem. I remember seeing, you know, the horrific reports from New York last spring and realizing, you know, how much my colleagues, they were suffering in comparison to me. It, it just gives you a sense of perspective. Yeah. I mean, uh, when, when Twitter goes right is how I tend to define, you know, the obvious of what that yes. stands for. And uh, yeah, as of this listening, we're wrapping up a three-part series on BCSM, the Twitter hashtag BCSM. I've been following Med Twitter forever. And I'm, I'm glad it's serving that role of kind of like self-policing the idiots or COVID idiots. Are we saying that word? Is that a word? COVID idiots? Whatever yeah, it is. Oh, it's, you know? it's, a, good, it's a great it's word. A good yeah. word and, yeah. it, and what's so fascinating, as you point out about BCSM, is the advocates led the way. Like the doctors were the right. sort of late joiners to the party. Yeah. So this is a when Twitter goes right. So so just for the for the cheap seats in the back, Med Twitter, the hashtag Med Twitter, talk about that. Yeah. So it is largely a collection of healthcare professionals. Um, so not just doctors, but nurses and physician assistants. And there's even med student Twitter, uh, which is also very fertile. So um, it is, I think, a really interesting insight into something I try to promote, which is that doctors are human beings. Uh, and believe it or not, even oncologists are human beings. And we really, I think, uh, are more personable than you might think from our reputation. You mentioned earlier that there's this sort of generational aspect, but frankly, there's a pretty wide um, representation now on Med Twitter, and I've actually been really gratified to see some of my um, elders, if you will, joining. It occasionally gets um, pretty, how should I put this, rancorous, meaning that we don't always agree. And um, especially our COVID response, it is not entirely clear uh, that we're always doing the right thing or at least not doing it uh, in a uniform fashion. So I think it's pretty entertaining to read. I can only imagine how it would look you know, to someone that's completely outside of healthcare. I think sometimes, again, it risks looking unprofessional. One famous example was last year, and this was sort of a internal attack, there was a journal of vascular surgery basically called people out as unprofessional if there were any photos of them online in a bathing suit. And it quickly acquired the hashtag med bikini. Oh, God. And, you know, we really talked a lot about, listen, yes, we're professionals, but we're also people. And we, I think, are figuring out as we go how to reconcile those two things. And I don't think it's wrong. Uh, if there's you know pictures online of someone uh, at the beach, um, I think it's okay that we share that part of our lives. And the fact that it was you know sort of branded as unprofessional by people inside our own field, really, as you can imagine, sparked a lot of controversy. I mean, it's just haters gonna hate, right? You, it's like one percent <laughs> of the people make ninety nine percent of the noise. I mean, you know, they see me rolling, they hating, you know. Oh my god! Oh my god! What have you learned the most from Med Twitter as a young adult cancer survivor slashy? GI oncologist. Yeah, I've I've learned that increasingly there's a permeable barrier between uh, doctors and patients. Um, I think 
a lot of, especially my older peers have been very nervous to go on social media because they don't want to um, sort of feel like they have to give binding medical advice to strangers. But I think increasingly you've seen this beautiful, I think, exchange between especially AYAs who tend to be digital natives and oncologists. I think we've learned what's important to them. Quite famously at a conference, I think two years ago now, one of my peers stood up and said, hey, listen, you know, we talk about all kinds of stuff in oncology. We talk about response rate. We talk about disease control rate. At the end of the day, the metrics our patients care about are longevity and quality of life. And I think you actually see that increasingly in conversations on med Twitter where patients themselves are informing what we understand to be important. Okay. I want to wrap up by doing a quick, um, like a rapid round of debunking vaccine shit. <laughs> Got it. Can cancer patients get the vaccine? Absolutely. And, and they should do. So there's a very small population of cancer patients that will have such impaired immunity that we might not expect their own T cells to respond. And I'm thinking people here that you know are immediately after a bone marrow transplant and they're still trying to regain their white blood cells. But other than that, most cancer patients, broadly speaking, should get the vaccine. After getting the vaccine, let's say both doses 30 days later, can you still carry a viral load and infect someone else that has not been vaccinated? Ooh, great question. So that remains to be seen. We certainly hope that vaccination confers less transmission from the person who got vaccinated. However, we don't know that quite yet. We do know that immunity for the recipient kicks in probably about 10 days after the first dose and then really gets fortified within two weeks after the second. So the reason I asked that question is because I can only imagine some like good version of an Orwellian future where there are like vaccinated only raves going on. Oh, yes. No, honestly, that was like the vision actually in Italy when they were having such an awful time early 2020 that it was going to be the haves and the have-nots. It was going to be people then who actually acquired natural immunity from being infected. Uh, and they were thinking about sort of passports, like you could show that you had antibodies. And so I, I hear you. I also think that from a public health perspective, the more people get the vaccine, the better. How do you think the CDC is going to handle, like, the to, to prove that you have been vaccinated? Those little paper cards they give you can be easily copied at, like, Staples or whatever. Oh, gosh. I honestly don't know. And, and actually, it, to be completely honest, I did not receive a paper card. I have a, I have vaccine selfies of, of myself. Right. That's my, my photographic proof. But you're right. That's not been uniform. And that's going to make it extremely difficult for people to you know, demonstrate vaccination down the line. The other problem is we suspect that um, – you know, at least native immunity only lasts about six months. So even if you have received protection, we don't yet know how long it lasts. And frankly, you know, by necessity, we've only been developing these vaccines for a year. There's no way for us to have that long-term data. I mean, I think you may know this, and my listeners certainly know this. I had I had COVID back in in March, and Ugh. nerd alert, I was fine. I was asymptomatic, and that's a whole other story. I wrote about it on LinkedIn. I'll, I'll put a link to my LinkedIn, like how the fuck did this happen to the cancer guy kind of story. But long story short. Nerd alert, I'm on one of the country's only longitudinal antibody shedding studies to see if I still have the same load as I had back in April, and I do. I have not oh, lost I love you, man. a single antibody in whatever quantified made-up number that means. So my other question is, people who have antibodies, do they actually need to be vaccinated first, or does it matter where they fit in the pool? Oh, great question. Um, I would argue that they probably 
shouldn't be vaccinated first if you're looking at this as a finite supply of resources, which it absolutely is. Um, it's tricky. Um, I will say I'm so glad you still have your uh, titer. Um, the study out of Oxford, which was really elegant, showed that only three people uh, out of hundreds, if not thousands, were reinfected within six months of their original infection. So I think we can almost guarantee it lasts that long, but how much longer, we just don't know. Right. I mean, was 80 million worldwide and three? Not so bad? <laughs> well, the answer study was a bit smaller, but yeah, no, I, I take your point. Absolutely. All right. Last question. What's the one myth that you get hit up the most with that you're debunking the most on Twitter? Oh, gosh, um, that cancer is caused by a patient making an incorrect choice. There is an incredibly judgmental portion of Twitter, and I'm ashamed to say even healthcare professionals who are perpetuating the myth that patients with cancer must have done something wrong. And I literally had a dialogue, I think a week ago, and I, you know, Posited, you know, how do I explain to the you know forty-two-year-old vegan triathlete in my clinic, you know, why they have metastatic esophageal cancer? And someone had the temerity to write back, "Oh, well, yeah, it's because you know triathlons are immunosuppressive." And and I was like, okay, and if we're going to go down this road, you know, how do we explain it to the four-year-old with medulloblastoma? And I didn't get a reply to that. So I, I just think it is so awful, and stigmatizing to, to put that on people. And I think it even goes back to, you know, lung cancer and smoking. Uh, my father at one point was told he had an atypical form of lung cancer, which was technically incorrect, and then blamed himself for secondhand smoke exposure. And it's just, we, as you know, we, we have to decouple the diagnosis and the person and, and not make it some sort of moral issue or character feeling. Well, we're definitely going to pick that up on the next exciting installment of Out of Patience with Mark Lewis. No, I'm serious. Dr. Mark Lewis, Director of GI Oncology at Intermountain Healthcare in Utah, on Twitter at MarkLewisMDLEWIS. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Oh, thank you so much. I love this community and I love what you do for it. That's all for today, folks. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. Out of Patience with Matthew Zachary is a product of Offscript Media. Our executive producer is Matthew Zachary. Our senior producers are Jen Horanjeff and Andrew McDowell. Darren Tun is our production intern. It is recorded, mixed, and edited by Matthew Zachary. Our theme music is by the Mike Van Allen Quintet and by Mara. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. Hit us up at contact at offscript.com to share comments, feedback, and make guest recommendations. For more information, visit offscript.com.